Okay, good. Um, good evening, everybody. My name is... Good evening. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple of people over there. My name is uh, Simon, and I'm part of the team that leads Revelation Church. Um, for those of you that are not regularly coming here, a warm welcome to you. At the moment at Revelation, we're working through a series whereby we're alternating between psalms and parables um, to look at some challenges and comforts of, um, of the Bible. And today we're going to be looking at the parable of the rich fool, which is taken from the Gospel of Luke. Um, before we start, I'd really like to pray. Um, I don't want to do anything without Jesus um, before I speak. Lord, I thank you, as we sang earlier, that you are beautiful. I really pray that um, you would use me to reveal your beauty tonight, that we would um, see more of your magnificence, that we would understand more of you and go out here changed and transformed because of the power of your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you help people to hear, to receive the words from you, and that you would uh, aid me to speak your words. Amen. Okay, so um, Luke 12 we're going to be looking at. I'd like to give a little bit of context to this parable before we start. Um, The time that we're talking about, Jesus has left Galilee and he's making his journey towards Jerusalem. And it's the last three to four months of his life um, before he goes to the cross. So the crucifixion is very central to his thinking and also very central to the teachings that Jesus embarks on through this journey. We're not entirely sure where he is when he's delivering this parable, but we do know that in the previous chapter, Jesus had been in the house of a Pharisee, um, and it wasn't the nicest dinner party that you could imagine. He had had a situation whereby the Pharisees and also some lawyers that were present in the house had been questioning Jesus and really trying to put Jesus to the test, and their intent was to try and catch him out on his theology, which is probably not a good thing, given that he was the living God. Um, (laughs) He'd, he'd had this dinner party and um, it had ended quite badly in that Jesus had rebuked some Pharisees and the lawyers in the house um, for their wickedness of heart and really for their focus on the temporal and for, the, for what is observed and the, the external. And he left this dinner party. And we're told that as he left, a great crowd of Pharisees and lawyers and others followed him. Um, And at the end of um, chapter 11, we're told that he went outside, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile towards him and to cross-examine him about many things, lying in wait to catch him in something he might say. So, not the most welcoming atmosphere for Jesus. As he comes out of this house, we're told that a crowd begins to gather, and this crowd is in the number of thousands, so much so that we're told at the beginning of chapter 12 that they begin to trample on one another. So it's quite a a heated scene. There's the Pharisees and the lawyers kind of heckling Jesus, a massive crowd following him. What we also know is that Jesus has his disciples around him too. And at the point where we're picking up this parable, Jesus has just been conversing with his disciples, who we assume from the reading that are kind of close to him, and beyond all the disciples is this mass crowd of people that aren't being too um, friendly towards Jesus. Um, And he's just been talking to his disciples about the importance of not fearing man, but of fearing God, who is the one who has the power to give life or death, and specifically within the context of the Pharisees, not to fear um, these quite harsh-lipped Pharisees. So I want to start reading from this parable. Jesus is in this crowd, he's just been talking to his disciples, and suddenly this man interrupts from the crowd. 
So if you want to read, this is um, Luke chapter 12, um, starting at verse 13. But I've got all the scriptures up here, so I can read it with you. So someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now I just want to stop there for a second. That might seem like a bit of a random interjection. Jesus has just been sharing with his disciples and suddenly someone in the crowd shouts out this comment. Um, It's probably not as strange as it might seem because in those days people might come to a rabbi or to a teacher um, who they view Jesus as, um, to try and intervene in legal matters, a bit like a kind of a small court's judge. Um, And so this question to Jesus, or this request to Jesus to intervene in a legal matter, is probably not so unfamiliar in this particular setting. Jesus then replies to the specific man in the crowd and says to him, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? So the expectation that this man has, that Jesus is here to help settle his family dispute, has has been refuted, and Jesus is saying, I'm not here for that. What happens then is Jesus is addressing this individual, but then I think he sees an opportunity, he sees something in this man's heart, and he thinks that actually there's a lesson that can be learned here to the greater crowd that have gathered in front. And he goes from speaking to this individual man to then addressing the fuller crowds, and he expands on his answer. He then goes on to say... This is to the wider crowd. Take care and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He then continues with a parable, which is the parable we're going to be looking at this evening, which is the parable of the rich fool. So I'll just read it through with you, and then we'll have a look back at it. So this is from um, verses 16 to 21. Jesus told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I'm sure the man in the crowd, having asked Jesus just to intervene over a matter of inheritance, after he'd heard this quite full answer, thought to himself, I I actually just wanted a yes or a no. I I didn't really need all of that, thank you very much. But I think Jesus spotted an opportunity here to address not just the man's heart, but to talk to the crowd. And so this evening I firstly want to look at why it is that Jesus responded in this way. Secondly, what it is that we can learn from this parable and why is it that Jesus gave this response. And lastly, how does this parable reveal the gospel? Because as as I mentioned earlier, Jesus very much had the cross in the forefront of his mind. He was on his way towards Jerusalem. And so a lot of what he's talking about is directing people towards the message of the gospel. So firstly then, why did Jesus respond in such a way when this man asked him to intervene about the matter of inheritance? We can assume a few things from the question that this man blurted out. Um, Firstly, the fact that he asked Jesus to intervene about inheritance probably meant that his father had recently died and um, he was probably in a bit of a a state of emotional turmoil himself. Secondly, we can probably assume that he was either the second or even the third son within this family because in, 
in the Jewish times, they recognised the tradition of something called the law of primogenitor, which stated, I mean, it comes back from, from Leviticus and Numbers, which stated that the firstborn son would inherit um, a double portion, or in some cases, the entirety of an inheritance when the, when the father dies. And so this man was probably a second or third son. Um, he may have inherited little compared to his elder brother, or maybe none at all. And he's asking Jesus to intervene, because from his perspective, it doesn't look too fair. Um, and he's not pleased with what he's been allotted. Jesus is essentially making a couple of points in his initial response to this man. Firstly, he states that, actually, I'm not here to be a judge or an arbitrator. But in his real answer, he's saying, take care and be on your guard. He's saying to this man, beware, because something is creeping in here, into your heart, that you need to be cautious of. So there's a bit of a warning there, first of all. And secondly, he states a principle. He's saying, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So we can assume that Jesus is seeing something in this man, whereby he's seeking to... um, find life or define life in, in, in this inheritance or in certainly in seeking possessions. We can understand that this man was probably in a place where he was feeling quite greedy. He wasn't content with what he had been allotted. More so, he wasn't content with what he had compared to somebody else. He was probably looking to other members of his family and thinking, they have more than me, they've had it much better than me and I've got a bit of a raw deal here. Now this may be a bit of an abstract scenario for us in that we don't often have the case whereby we're arguing over inheritance. But I'd like you to think about times when we are dissatisfied with our allotted portion, where we feel that we haven't had what we are due and we deserve more. Where we have times where we are perhaps coveting what someone else has. In some translations... um, The greed reads as covetousness, and Jesus is saying, do not covet as well. And it seems that this man is really dissatisfied with what he has, and he's looking at other, his siblings, and saying, I want what they've got. And I think this is probably something that's not uncommon for us. We can often find ourselves in circumstances whereby we're looking at what someone else has, and thinking, I wish I had that. It may be as simple as going around somebody's house and thinking, wow, you've got it really made up here, I I would like that. It may be looking at someone's um, job or where they've made um, in their career and thinking, I wish I was at that place. Or it may be in terms of finance and thinking about, I wish I, wish I was in that position. And I think it's quite a common um, emotion for, for us to feel. An example of this um, is the case of the January sales, I think. Um, it, none so prevalent at a time as when we want more, and we want more than we have potentially got already. Um, I wanted to show you a quick example of where greed is really manifesting itself and how sometimes it can be incredibly gripping um, to have this feeling of wanting more than we currently have. I just wanted to show you a clip, um, girls, if you wouldn't mind putting that on. This is um, the opening of Selfridges on Boxing Day. 8,000 people had uh, queued up waiting from Christmas day evening for the opening of the Boxing Day sale. So this is the scene as the doors are opening here. Tension is rising as the doors are about to open. <laughs> now just look at them as they bumping into each other, running up the stairs. See this chap jumping over someone there. I absolutely wouldn't want to be there. 
don't know about you, but I don't like shopping at the best of times, and that just fills me with dread if I was to be in that situation. But what seems to have happened here is that something has gripped the hearts of these people in that they're so intent on seeing something and wanting something and desiring something that they're prepared to queue overnight on Christmas Day evening amongst thousands of people and then kind of work themselves up into a bit of a frenzy to dive into Selfridges. Um, I, I think Selfridges is quite a good example of how sometimes um, this desire for more can really um, take hold of our hearts. I've got a bit of a theory about Selfridges in that it's a bit of a, a shrine to um, needing more and creating desire. Um, as part of my degree a few years ago, I did um, what seems to be rather a random module that was called the Psychology of Shopping Mall Architecture. <laughs> it's a good, good thing about a degree. It was a geography degree. Um, I, I chose it because the field trip was to go to Las Vegas. And... Um, we studies as part of this course some of the psychology that goes into designing places such as Selfridges and you would not believe the amount of work and effort that goes into the design to create this sense of enticement and desire as someone walks into the shop down to the type of lighting, the smells, the layout of the escalators um, the music that's playing the gradation of the floor like everything has been planned and is deliberate and the intent is that you do not notice at all as you walk in, you just suddenly become overwhelmed with desire as you walk in. And I think Selfridges has it down very well in that you find yourself, if you walk into Selfridges, you kind of step into this spell as you walk in and um, you, you suddenly see all these shiny items around and something inside you tells you that you need something. You don't know what it is, but you do need it. And um, you, you can go up the escalators and suddenly you've got this panoramic view of all of these goods twinkling and shining and um, you don't know what it is, but you've got to find something in this. And I think on, uh, on the Boxing Day of Sales that this is the frenzy that had built up. And I know for myself that when I, I've been in there, you suddenly spot something that you never knew you actually needed so desperately. But once you see it, you are absolutely um, hell-bent on getting it. And you need that item. So imagine that you spotted this T-shirt in the distance and it's calling to you and you feel it drawing you in and you walk over to it. And once you see it, you think, wow, that is the most amazing t-shirt I've ever seen in my entire life it was made for me and it's the only one so surely it is a sign it was for me and um you look at the gift tag, the, the price, and you think, wow, that is reassuringly expensive as well. It must, it must be quality. <laughs> so I am prepared to invest in this one item. And, uh, and so you purchase it, very pleased with yourself, and something inside you is content, and you know you are complete now that you have this item. And you walk back out of Selfridges, and then suddenly you go through the doors, and bang, the spell is broken, and you find yourself clutching this bag, and you think, why on earth... Did I spend that money on this T-shirt or this item of clothing or whatever it may be? I actually don't need it at all. I don't even like it, and it probably makes me look a bit stupid. Um, somehow we can become gripped by desire and gripped by need and convince ourselves that we actually need something when really we don't. What Jesus is saying in this parable is to say, be aware um, and he's also addressing believers here to say, be aware, be on your guard, because this is something that can creep up on you, I believe, and uh, sometimes we don't know about it. Paul speaks about being content. Um, I think what's revealed here is sometimes a dissatisfaction that we can feel with what we have. Um, when Paul is speaking to the church in Philippi, he tells them this about being satisfied in Christ. 
you mind clicking the next slide for me, please? Why don't we read it out instead? <laughs> I've got to find it now. Okay. Tell me if it appears behind me whilst I'm, I am looking. <laughs> okay, Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Paul says this to the church. Not that I am referring... <laughs> ah, you beat me to it. Okay. Here we go. Going to stay like that? Okay. <laughs> I'll keep reading. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things <laughs> through Him who strengthens me. <laughs> My question is, is this a statement that you can make? Can you say, as Paul has said here, that whether you are in abundance or in need, whether you are hungry or full, that you are completely satisfied by Jesus? This is the position I believe that he wants us to be in, and this is a matter of a heart issue that I think Jesus is addressing to this man in the crowd, in that he is stating his um, feeling of security, his feeling of... um, being content by, by what's around him, by things, essentially. And Jesus is saying it's not in the things. Actually, life is going to be found in something else. And he goes on later in this chapter to be quite explicit and say, life is only found in God the Father, and I'm very much here to point you towards him. When Jesus is talking about life here, the word actually means, it's a Greek word called zoe, which means eternal life. And he's not just saying life or contentedness in the moment, but actually in terms of an eternal sense, life is not found in what you have or don't have, it's only found in the Father. So I want to then um, look at the parable. I believe that Jesus used the parable after um, responding to this man because this principle in itself probably wasn't that shocking to, to believers and it might not be so shocking to you. It might be common sense or it might certainly be familiar to you that you know that life cannot be found in the abundance of possessions. You hopefully know that greed is something that you need to be cautious of. But Jesus then um, spoke this parable because I believe he was trying to take this to a more radical level and remove some more truths about what was going on in this man's heart. So I'd like to look back at the parable with you and um, talk about three things that I think can creep in um, to the heart that this man um, is susceptible to and that we too need to watch out for. Um, Jesus said, beware of all kinds of greed. So we're not just talking about money. I think that this is a great example because money is something that can really demonstrate the grip that greed has on us. But Jesus says, beware of all kinds of greed. There's any situation whereby we're dissatisfied with what we have and we're desiring or wanting more or coveting what someone else has. Could we go on to the next slide, please, girls? Number eight, please. Thank you very much. 
Trap number one, it's, it's all about me. Next slide, please. Okay. As we read through this parable, I've just highlighted here um, the grammar that was used by this rich man as he is telling his story. Um, If I read through and put emphasis where I've put the red circles, I think you'll get an idea for the points I'm trying to make. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. We can pretty much tell by the way that this rich man is speaking that his life is pretty much centred around himself. His focus is on what he has, what he's going to do with all that he has, and his thinking is very much consumed by himself. In Matthew 12, Jesus says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I think we can clearly say here that uh, the mouth is revealing that the heart is pretty selfish in this case with regards to the rich man. He's become all consumed with what he has and his wealth. Not only that, but I believe the rich man has become self-sufficient to his detriment, in that he has pushed God out. He's made no room for God in his circumstance. He's trying to solve his own problem here um, in thinking about what to do with all this wealth that he's accumulated, and at no point is he turning to God. He's um, made no room for God in his life. Also, I think I get the sense that this man feels like he deserves to have um, a time at the end of his life where he kicks up his feet and he relaxes. He feels that he's worked really hard and therefore he deserves to have some time out. Um, That's probably not too uncommon um, a desire, and in fact I think that's probably the intent of a lot of people, that they work hard and then they have some years off at the end. Now the intent is not what's at stake here, it's the man's heart. This particular rich man has discluded God from his thinking, he's taken it upon himself to, to take credit of all that he's done, and is really only concerned with what he is thinking. As I first read this parable, um, I really looked at what the man was thinking, and at first glance, I thought, well, what is wrong with it? If you look from a, from a kind of a business um, setting, the solution he's come up with is quite credible. As part of my job, I'm, I'm a consultant, um, which is always a, a wishy-washy term, I know, but uh, I, I consult with businesses on all sorts of things. And uh, if, if someone came to me with this problem and says, I have an abundance of stock, what shall I do with it? I think this answer is actually quite good, because if you think about it, what this man suggests is that rather than building adjacent barns and storing things all about his land, he proposes to tear the existing one down and build up a bigger one on top of the same land. By doing this, he's actually conserving the land that he has, so he can continue to accumulate, he continues to grow crops, and his wealth can um, continue to grow. So in itself, I don't think that, uh, you know, from a business perspective, if this was put before the dragon's den, they probably would agree and think that is actually a good idea. But um, it's the heart that Jesus is interested in. It's not the plans, it's the heart behind the man. And that's what he's beginning to reveal here, that this man's heart is really quite self-centred and self-focused. He thinks that he 
as deserving of all that he has done. And he's deserving to be able to you know, put up his feet when he has worked hard. My question is, do we ever fall into that trap to think, I have deserved this, I've deserved this piece of clothing, or I've deserved this nice holiday because I've worked so hard? Do we actually deserve anything? Are we in a place where we can say we have earned anything? If we look to Jesus, he gave up everything so that we might have life. He came and suffered horrifically on the cross because of our sin. There is nothing that we deserve. It is only about him. Trap number two. Girls, if you wouldn't mind going to the next slide. It is all mine. A mistake that the rich man is making, I think, is believing that this abundance that he has been blessed with is his to deal with freely. If you can go to the next slide, please. If we look again back at the parable... Um, Jesus clearly states here that it is the land of the rich man that produced plentifully. It was not because of the cleverness of the man. We are told in Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and everything therein. Anything that this man had was because God had chosen to bless him. It was not of his own doing. This man makes the mistake of thinking that his blessing is for him to deal with freely. He views it as his own resources and really doesn't take God into consideration. Indeed, when he thinks to himself, what am I going to do with all that I've been given? He actually just turns to himself for the answer and doesn't include God at all. How do we view what God has given us? How do we view our own resources? Here we're talking about money, but I believe it is also applicable to our giftings, to our talents. What do we do with what God has given us? All good things are from God. And the question here is how you view what God has given you. Are they yours to deal with freely, or do you include God in the way that you distribute and the way that you um, use these resources? If you go to the next slide, please. I don't know if any of you have um, seen this before. I wanted to give another example um, of how sometimes wealth can be used. This is the house of a gentleman called Makesh Abami. Um, you may have seen this in the news just before Christmas. Um, this guy is India's richest man and the fifth richest person in the world. This was the world's first billion-dollar Um, house. It is constructed in the city of Mumbai, um, which, um, as probably a lot of you know, is full of slums. Um, You only have to step back a few hundred yards from this picture to actually see a sea of slums of homeless people. This man um, built a 27-storey house with three helicopter pads on the top, um, multiplex cinema on one level, a full health centre on another level, um, and had an opening party and invited the likes of Jay-Z and spent millions and millions of pounds at his housewarming. I'm not here to judge this man's heart. I don't know um, whether he gives equally to the poor. I have my doubts. <laughs> um, But I think this is quite a drastic illustration of how a particular rich man that is alive today has chosen to view what he has as his own and uh, demonstrates how one man has chosen to use his riches. To me, it's a complete 
parallel with this, with this parable because he's saying to himself, what can I do with all my riches? I will build myself a huge storehouse to store all of my things in. Um, at no point does the rich man say to God, what, do you, what would you like me to do with all this abundance that you have given me? Is there anyone else about that might benefit from all of this grain that I'm about to store? And I would like to think that potentially this gentleman here may have asked God the same question. What is it that you want me to do? I would doubt that God would say, build a 27-storey house with three helipads. I'd, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. So the rich man really failed um, to acknowledge God's goodness in his life. Whether or not he knew him, we don't know. But certainly we can say categorically that the blessing was from God. It was not of his own doing. And I really want you to think about how you view the resources and giftings and talents and blessings that God has brought into your life. Do you deal with them freely as your own? Or are you saying to God, God, what do you want me to do with all that you have given me? Are you a steward or are you an owner of what God has allowed to come into your hands? If you could go to the next slide, please. Third trap. I'm secure with my treasure. Um, If you go to the next slide, please. If we look again at the parable, verse um, 19, the rich man says to himself, um, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This man, I believe, was putting a lot of security in his possessions. Because he had this abundance, he felt that he was safe, that he was almost untouchable, and that he would be fine in all the years of his life because he had his abundance. He put his security in his things and not in God. If you can go to the next slide, please. In Matthew, Jesus speaks of um, treasure And I just wanted to to read from this. This is a very similar scenario where Jesus is talking to a large crowd with Pharisees. Um, And I think there's some things we can learn from this in view of this parable. I'll just read it with you. And behold, a man came to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Go to the next slide, please. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, And just to pause there, it's not because of the richness, it's because of the heart. It's because, as this man clearly stated, it it can become incredibly hard if if the request is made, would you be willing to give this up for me? I think the more you have, the harder that becomes sometimes. Um, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? 
But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see we have everything and followed you, we left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers, or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. It's the same principle here. The rich man had a view that he could store up his treasure. And ultimately, he started off rich, but he's ended up poor because God said to him, fool, your life is required of you. And in essence, he's saying, you can't take all this with you. All that you've accumulated, what happens to it when you die? You can't take it with you. Instead, Jesus is saying here, focus on laying up treasure that is eternal. Focus on things that will last for eternity and not things that will just be temporal. This man places security in what he had. Can we truly say that our security and our comfort is in God and not in what we have or don't have? Can we truly say that God is our strong tower and our rock? The criticism with this rich man is not that he was rich, it's his heart. He was so gripped to his possessions. He was so holding so tightly to his wealth that God was squeezed out. We have a choice to either... Use what blessings God has given us to sow for eternity or to reap in the temporary. And unfortunately it seems the rich man in this parable has chosen the latter and is thinking very temporally. I wanted to just share a testimony with you this evening um, from my own life of how um, some of these principles have come about and how God has really um, tested my heart. Um, One of the things I believe God has called myself and my wife Natalie to is in the area of finance and certainly to um, finance the kingdom of God. That's a real passion of mine to earn, I would love to earn as much money as I possibly can to channel and to fund and resource the kingdom of God. Um, That might seem like quite a, you know, a a convoluted uh, statement to make, but I believe that's something God has put in my heart. And God has really taken me through a journey to test that. And I think it reveals some of these things that we're, our heart is susceptible to. So I wanted to share with you. Um, I was in a, a very, very good job a couple of years ago. I mean, in uh, 2009, I had been in a company for six years, a large global company, and I was doing incredibly well. I'd been blessed by God and full credit to him. Um, I'd been promoted year on year and was doing fantastically. Um, However, it came to the point um, in 2009 when the credit crunch hit and um, as many companies did, it it had to cut down and it changed shape and changed format. And uh, it just became a different place and I didn't want to work there anymore and I just felt God saying to me that um, my time had come there and I was to look for something else. And um, at the time, a couple of the partners from this company were going to leave and set up their own company and I really felt God saying to to leave and join um, with them. The condition, however, was because they were setting up a new company that I would have to take a pay cut, a serious pay cut of about 50% um, um, as my investment into this company and I'd gone from doing very well to having to make this decision. But I felt God was in it. Um, so I joined this company um, in 
August of 2009. Um, and to make ends meet, I had to start digging into my savings. Me and my wife, Natalie, decided that this was of God, and um, we would invest by using our savings to support ourselves. And we had a, a, our son that was one year old at the time, and we'd also made the decision for Natalie to stay at home full time um, to, to look after Jonas. And so um, we only had one salary, so um, one thing we had to use was our savings. What God revealed was this, this was actually for us quite a security because whatever had gone on prior to that, we knew that we always had that there. It was a bit of a, um, a buffer, a bit of a comfort zone for us. And uh, again, it's not about the savings, but it's about the heart issue here. And for us, it certainly was a comfort. My wife is German, and um, for any of you who know Germans, they're very into their savings. Um, I'm more of the spending type, and (laughs) Natalie is definitely a saver. And um, it was quite hard for us to come to that decision, um, but we really believe that God was saying, do this and use up our savings. And not only that, but God also said to us to not... um, reduce our giving to the church so we wanted to keep giving as we had when I had a very good job and, uh, and so our savings which were considerable in that it was a, a house deposit for us um, was not lasting that long towards the end of that year in November we had a visit at the church here from a gentleman called Julian Adams um, who is part of the New Frontiers movement who has a very strong prophetic gifting and um, he prayed for me at at a, a meeting that we had and during that time he gave a prophetic picture that kind of confirmed the heart that Nasi and I had towards finances and, and, um, and the kingdom of God and he spoke of, he said, oh, you know, I can see you with money all around you and you having incredible favour and opportunity in the business world and I was going, yes, yes, this is obviously means that this job is going to be fantastic and it's all going to work out and our savings are going to you know, come back to us tenfold. Um, <laughs> Surprisingly, that was not what happened. Um, as often happens with prophetic words, it's something that God was giving for um, the future, and it was something for us to, for, for us to hold on to. Um, as, that, as time went on after this prophetic word, actually our savings went down and down and down until the point came where we spent every single penny. Um, at the same time, I decided that this company actually wasn't for me. I believe it was of God for us to go through that, but um, some of the principles that this company was working under, I believe, were really conflicting in terms of God's principles, and I decided that wasn't the right time to leave. So we were faced with a bit of a situation um, and a step of faith, because we'd spent seven months, used up our entire savings, and uh, I was contractually... um, unallowed to contact any previous clients from my other job because I had a period of a year where I couldn't approach anyone. And so in deciding to give up this job, it was very serious because it meant I actually had no one I could call. We had no savings and I was about to to leave my job. But we believe that God said, do it. Um, In March of last year, just gone, Nasi and I prayed and really felt God saying, end the job sever yourself from this job Um, and whilst we were praying um, it was actually during a training track with Esther Natalie had um, a picture um, that God gave her for this time and it was a picture of a very turbulent sea and in this sea was a feather 
with Natalie and I in there, and God was saying that um, he would keep us secure and safe in a very turbulent time. And we assumed that this would be about the job. You know, it gave us a lot of comfort to think that we could hold on to this and that, that God would see us through because we were really... I was resigning from a job with no, absolutely not a single prospect of what I was going to do next. Um, Natalie was at home. Um, we had no savings, so it was quite dire. So on, on a Thursday, after we prayed um, and we were at the training track, I resigned from my job the following day on the Friday um, and said that I no longer was going to work there. And this was the end of March, and from the 1st of April, I was going to um, set up myself for self-employed, not knowing at all what was ahead. Um, on the Monday of that following week, um, Natalie and I had an appointment at the hospital because Natalie was pregnant with our second child, um, who at the time was 13 weeks old, the baby in her womb. And uh, we got to the hospital and thinking everything was fine, only to find out that the baby had in fact died. And um, yeah, we'd lost the baby. At that point, I can safely say that we felt that all our securities had been stripped away. Um, on that day, we had, you know, we'd lost this baby. We had um, no money at all. I'd resigned from my job the previous Friday, and I had no idea what was going to be happening next. Um, we had placed our comfort and our security in a lot of things, quite unbeknown to us, I have to say. Um, and it was true to say that we hadn't put our entire security in God. And I believe this was a way... Um, that God was able to get us to a place whereby we could say 100% we were trusting in God. And the amazing thing is that during this time, we had complete peace. Um, even after the hospital, we had complete peace that God was in control and that we could trust in him as our real security. What happened next, I think, was even more amazing because on April the 1st, I then was faced with a situation whereby I'd left my job and we, you know, were, we're in this place where we had nothing. I had three people that I could contractually contact because for various reasons they'd moved on to a different company. I was allowed to approach them. Um, it seemed like a bit of a stab in the dark. Three people that I had potentially to contact. Um, in, in business, if you're marketing and doing, trying to do some new business development, the success rate of a marketing campaign on average is about 5%. So if I emailed 100 people, you could expect about five people to at least respond. So the situation I was in with having three people to contact wasn't looking that rosy. Um, however, on, on the 1st of April, I sent out these three emails and within around 20 minutes, two of them had phoned me and one of them had emailed back. All three of them had asked me to come and see them. Um, without going into too much detail, from those three emails, I got an entire year's worth of work um, equal to the, you know, the previous salary. Um, and they have all completed and, and booked through to the end of 2012 uh, from, from these three emails. But it, it, it took coming to the place of us completely trusting in God, giving up all that we had, and God was able to turn it around in a matter of a day or so. And God has continued to prove himself to be absolutely reliable, trustworthy, and our real rock throughout that. Ultimately, if we look back at this man in the crowd, his argument becomes futile because it's not about his inheritance, it's about his heart. And Jesus is interested in people's hearts. 
We're told that the human heart is wicked above all things. In Jeremiah, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, I can tell you this, there is one thing that uh, can change a heart. There's one person who is able to change a heart, and that is Jesus. The heart can be sick, and things like greed can eat away and, be, and really grip you, I think. And the, the, the want for more, the desire for what someone else has, <laughs> can really consume and take over somebody's life. In Ezekiel we're told, um, and this is a kind of prophetic word of Jesus, that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Only Jesus can change hearts. He can change our attitudes. He can change our motivations. He can change our desires. Only the cross has the power to transform our lives and the Holy Spirit has the power (laughs) to bring a new nature to us. Jesus said that life cannot be found in the abundance of possessions, but we can clearly say today that life can be found in him. Lastly, how does this gospel reveal, sorry, how does this parable reveal this gospel? Absolutely beautifully, I can say. Here we have the story or the parable of a man who had everything, but ended up with nothing. God said to him, fall, your life is required of you, and and he can't take anything with you. He ended up with nothing at all because he invested all he had in the temporal. Jesus, however, was the complete opposite. He lived a life where he gave up absolutely everything unto death on the cross so that we might have life. He gave up everything so that we might have it all. Which of these two pictures resembles your life most? Are you someone who um, is investing in the now, or are you being rich towards God? Are you viewing all that you have and all that you are as a blessing from God to bless others? We are called to follow Jesus' example. In John 11.25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. We're called to lay down all that we are, to view all that we have as his, um, and to view all that we are as his. If you don't know him, and you recognise that your heart is sick or that you're susceptible to some of these things I've talked about, then I can certainly tell you today that Jesus is one who can transform your heart, who can free you from the sickness of feeling dissatisfied, who can free you from the sickness of wanting and desiring more and never being able to feel fulfilled. Jesus is the one who can fulfil you and bring life. Don't be like the rich fool. He placed his focus on what he had. But I do suggest that you be foolishly rich towards God. Give all that you have for him and to him. To finish with, um, I'd like to continue reading from this chapter because Jesus, in this scene, he goes from addressing the crowds to then turning back to his disciples and talks a little bit more about what's just happened in this parable. So I just want to read that to you. Um, If the band would please like to come up, um, if you can just play, Andy, that would be great, while I'm just reading through the last few verses of this chapter. So I'm going to read from um, verse 22 from Luke 12. So Jesus, from talking to the man, turns back to his disciples and he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. 
For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, yet they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not clothed as one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows all that you need. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near or no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Desiring is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I think it can be redeemed to the extent that we should desire God. We should be in a place where we are unsatisfied with God in that we want more of him. In 1 Corinthians 14, we are told to eagerly desire the good things from God, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. In many of the Psalms, we're told to seek him where he might be found, to desire to be in his presence. And I believe that Jesus wants us to be in that place of only desiring him and nothing else.